Our session to this afternoon is on uh, profits and politics. It's lecture four in your notes if you want to uh, follow along there. Let me begin with prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for uh, this time we can spend together in your word. I pray that you would bless us as we continue to study the book of Kings. Uh, you would guide us by your spirit. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have poured out your spirit on us and you've made us a company of prophets. And we pray that as we uh, study the work of prophets in the history of the kingdom, that uh, we'd learn more about what it means to be a prophetic people and that we would be faithful in carrying out this, uh, this task and this privilege. Uh, we pray that you would give us insight into the way you work in the world and uh, to the power of your word. And uh, we pray that we would take great confidence from this uh, book and from our studies together. We pray that you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned uh, at the first session this morning that uh, the Book of Kings is classified by Jewish reckoning as a prophetic book. It's one of the former prophets. The historical books, what we think of as historical books, are considered prophetic books. Uh, and that's uh, uh, partly because of the prominence of prophets. It's, it's because of the way that this history is, uh, in the way that we've been studying it, it's, it's understood to be prophetic in the sense it gives us insight into the workings of reality, into God's working in history, and it enables us to understand something about how God might work in our own time or in the future. So it's prophetic in that sense, but it's also prophetic in a kind of surface sense that uh, the book is just full of prophets. Uh, it is uh, named Kings, but it's just as much a book about prophets and prophetic ministry as it is a book about Kings and royal work. Uh, by my count, there are 10 different named prophets in the book, and then there are uh, prophets that are not named. There are companies, groups of prophets that are uh, not individually named. And then there are uh, unidentified prophets, uh, prophets that are known only by uh, their uh, their uh, location, like the man of God from Judah in 1 Kings 13, or the old prophet who lives in Bethel. We don't know his name, but we know that he's, we know his location. Um, there's Nathan, Nathan the prophet who shows up in 2 Samuel is, is still there in David's court in the first couple of chapters of Kings. Ahijah the prophet is the prophet who uh, announces to Jeroboam that he's going to receive the 10 tribes. Ahijah tears his cloak in pieces and he gives 10 of the pieces to uh, to uh, uh, Jeroboam and the other two pieces are reserved for the Davidic kings. And Ahijah is the, is the prophet who initiates that new movement in, uh, in the kingdom's history, that uh, movement of the, of the divided kingdom. Uh, there's a the lengthy prophetic narrative in 1 Kings 13, uh, the man of God from Judah and the old prophet that we'll look at later. Uh, Micaiah, uh, comes up as a prominent prophet right at the end of First Kings. Uh, he's the prophet who is uh, prophesying the truth to Ahab, uh, unlike all of Ahab's false prophets who are just encouraging him to go up and, and fight against the city. Uh, he's, uh, uh, Micaiah is actually speaking the Lord's, the Lord's word to Ahab. Uh, there's Huldah the prophetess later on during the time of Josiah, when Josiah rediscovers the law, he consults with Huldah in order to get an idea of what this means for him and his and the kingdom in that particular time. 
uh, and uh, so the, uh, those are a few of the prophets. We not only have those prophets kind of scattered across the whole of the narrative, but uh, if you think back to the to the Russian nesting doll structure that I gave in uh, my notes for lecture two, uh, right at the center of the book, we have a lengthy section where uh, the kings kind of recede from view. They're, they're still there. Ahab is a big is a big character in Jezebel, but the real prominent characters in those chapters, the last several chapters of First Kings, uh, and then the early chapters of Second Kings, the real prominent characters are the two prophets Elijah and Elisha. The structural arrangement of kings, in other words, doesn't put uh, the reigns of particular kings at the center so much as the work of particular prophets. So, uh, just in terms of the kind of the surface features of the text. Uh, it's a, it's uh, helpful to call it a prophetic book. And I think it's also helpful to recognize it as a prophetic book because of the role that the prophetic word plays in uh, shaping the history that's given here. And that works on uh, a number of different levels. Uh, in, in at least one case, there may, be an, uh, there may be other cases, but this is the one that I remembered. Uh, in at least one case, Kings records the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made many centuries before um, by, uh, by Joshua. Uh, this is uh, in 1 Kings 16, uh, and it's talking about the reign of, it's the beginning of the reign of Ahab. Ahab is the son of Omri, and we looked this morning at um, Omri's reign and how it parallels the reign of David. But at the end of 1 Kings 16, we have the beginning of Ahab's reign. And part of the beginning of that reign is this, at, right at the end of chapter 16. In Ahab's days, Heal the Bethelite built Jericho. So Jericho had been destroyed, of course, by Joshua. And up until the time of Ahab, it remained, ruin, it remained in ruins. So Heal the Bethelite laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its case with the loss of his son Sigub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. If you go back to the book of Joshua, chapter six, you see that Joshua pronounced a curse against anyone who would rebuild Jericho. It's the very curse that Heal the Bethelite suffers here, the loss of his firstborn and the loss of his, uh, loss of his youngest son. That's, that Joshua had predicted that that would happen to anyone who rebuilt Jericho. And now, centuries later, I mean, that uh, Joshua's... Uh, Joshua's prophesying that right, you know, right after the conquest, at the beginning of the conquest, the conquest isn't even over yet. We have the whole period of the judges. We have uh, the the reign of Saul, the reign of David, the reign of Solomon, a number of a number of kings in the northern kingdom, and now uh, several hundred years later, this word of the Lord, which has been hovering over the site uh, of Jericho all these centuries, is fulfilled. Uh, the word of the Lord uh, may be forgotten by human beings, but God doesn't for, forget his word, including a word of curse pronounced by Joshua. Joshua, we don't think of as a prophetic figure, but in this case, he was prophesying, and that word continues to have an, an effect, and it has an effect many centuries later. Uh, within Kings, we have a, a lot of examples of uh, prophecies that are made in the, in the, in the, in the book of Kings that are fulfilled within the book of Kings. That's an example of a prophecy that was made many centuries before and it's recorded in a different book. And then its fulfillment is recorded in Kings. But within Kings, we have this regular pattern of a prophet saying something and then the prophecy happening. And let me just highlight a couple of those. 
uh, uh, these are a, a couple of many uh, examples that occur in uh, in First and Second Kings. First uh, Kings fourteen. This is during the reign of Jeroboam. Uh, Jeroboam uh, has two sons. He names his sons Abijah and uh, Nadab and Abijah. Uh, he is those those names might ring a bell. Um, they, they sound like the names of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and I think that's deliberate. Jeroboam is uh, setting himself up as a kind of ironic figure. After all, he does make golden calves and begin worshiping golden calves, just as Aaron did at, at uh, the foot of Sinai. And he names his sons, the, the, the names of the two sons of uh, Aaron. Those are the two sons you might remember in, in, uh, in Leviticus 10 who get fried when they take strange fire into before the Lord and the Lord breaks out and burns them inside the ark in the tabernacle. So anyway, Abijah is sick. And so Jeroboam sends his wife to Ahijah, the prophet, the prophet of Shiloh. He sends her in disguise because he uh, doesn't want uh, the Ahijah to, to know that, uh, that uh, it's, it's the king's wife who's coming. Uh, and uh, she comes in, Ahijah immediately knows who she is. After all, you're not going to, uh, a disguise is not going to, not going to uh, hide you from a prophet. Uh, and uh, the king, uh, and the, in the course of their conversation, uh, verse 12 of 1 Kings 14, Ahijah says this, he predicts the fall of the house of Jeroboam, which is going to take place, but he also predicts this as a kind of um, foreshadowing, a kind of proleptic fall of the house. Uh, the son of Jeroboam is going to die, and that's going to be a foreshadowing of the fall of the entire dynasty. In verse 12, now you, now you arise, go to your house, he says to Jeroboam's wife. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. That's the prophecy. And then just a few verses later, verses 17 and 18, Jeroboam's wife arose and departed, came to Tirsa, and she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died, and all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. There you have a prophecy that's given in a very short time later, it's fulfilled. I mean, it's like within the same day or it's whatever time it takes for her to travel back from Shiloh back to Tirzah. That's the time uh, between the prophecy and its fulfillment. But the word of the Lord delivered by the prophet is determining the fate of Abijah, the son of Jeroboam. Uh, uh, we have a, another case in uh, 1 Kings 16, uh, Jehu, not the Jehu who's the avenger of the house of uh, against the house of Ahab, but another Jehu who is a prophet, uh, speaks the word of the Lord and says this to Baasha, who has become king in the northern kingdom. Verse two of First Kings sixteen: Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my, over my people Israel, you have walked the way of Jeroboam and made the people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. That is to say, he continued to worship the golden calves. That's the sin of Jeroboam. Behold, I will consume Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But anyone of Baasha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Uh, that's the prophecy that comes from Jehu. That's the word of the Lord. Uh, and that's, 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 that's kind of the ultimate curse. Um, defeat on the battlefield is a curse. Um, death is a curse. But if you're dead and your body is laid out in the city and nobody cares enough to bury it, or there's nobody around perhaps to bury it, and the dogs come and eat your body, that's, that's a sign that you're utterly devastated. It's not just you who died, but anybody who cares enough about you to bury you is also gone. 
Uh, and if you die in the field, then you're going to be eaten by the scavenger birds. So that's a prophecy. And then uh, a few verses later in uh, uh, in 1 Kings 16, uh, Zimri is becoming king. And it came about when he became king. As soon as he sat on the throne, he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave a single male, uh, a single one of him who pisses against the wall is the old uh, King James translation. Not a single male, either of the brothers nor of his friends. Zimri destroyed the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha through the prophet Jehu. So the, the fate and the future of Baasha's house is determined by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, uh, the Lord has determined this, you could say, decreed it. Let's, we could say that. But this is not just about a decree. This is about the word of the Lord being spoken within the history of Israel. And that spoken word, spoken by a prophet who receives the word from the Lord, is carried out. And it actually, that's, that's how, that's what's determining uh, the fate of these various kings. Uh, usually it's pretty bad news uh, for kings in the book of Kings. Prophets don't often give them, give, prop, uh, give the kings good news. Uh, but there are a couple of examples in, uh, in kings of prophets who announce good news to kings and those, that good news also is fulfilled. Uh, that word of the prophet also, uh, also is effective. This is in 2 Kings chapter 14. This is in the reign of a second Jeroboam. The, uh, Jeroboam I was the first king of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam II is uh, uh, a, 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 a king who starts the, the sequence of the last seven kings of the northern kingdom. Uh, and Second uh, Kings 14.23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, uh, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king in Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nemat, which he made Israel sin. So he's He's continuing the sins of his namesake. He restored the border of Israel. So even though he's wicked in the sight of the Lord, he restores the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah. That is, he's recovering territory. And that's done according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of gath Hefer. Yes, that's the same Jonah that's found in the book of Jonah. This is his one brief appearance in the book of Kings. And he's actually... Uh, giving encouraging news to Jeroboam II, even though Jeroboam II is a wicked king, Jonah prophesies good news and tells him that they're going to recover territory that had been taken away from them, and they're going to expand their borders. So, uh, and that happens. Okay, so this is this is recording the fulfillment of that in verse 25. He restores the border of Israel back to its former former uh, extent, uh, and that is in fulfillment of the word of Jonah. So the, the, the Lord speaks in history through his prophets. What the Lord speaks in history comes to pass. And that word, the word of the prophet spoken within the course of Israel's history is shaping that history. Uh, the word of the prophet is more determinative than any pronouncements of the king. The king can issue his decrees. He can have his rants. He can speak his, his words and they have a certain kind of authority, certainly but nothing like the authority of the prophet. Uh, the, prophets, the prophetic word is the word that shapes uh, the, uh, the course of history and the rise and fall of the kings. And it's not, just, it's not just the word of the prophet, but it's the prophet himself 
and his existence within Israel that determines the rise and fall of kings and the prosperity and the, uh, and the uh, lack of prosperity of different kings. How you treat the prophets will determine how your kingdom goes. You know, if you give the cup, a cup of cold water to a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward, Jesus says. Uh, if, you give a, if, you, if you treat the prophets well, according to kings, you'll receive uh, a reward for that. <coughs> let, me, let me highlight a couple of examples of this. Uh, in 2 Kings 9, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> this is, <coughs> pardon me, this is when a Jehu is being anointed in order to, this is the other Jehu, the avenger against the house of Ahab. Uh, he's being anointed in order to carry out the vengeance against the house of Ahab. Uh, and Elisha deploys one of, his, one of his subordinate prophets to go and anoint Jehu for this task. And so I'll pick up in verse 4 of 2 Kings 9. The young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. And he rose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the, uh, over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Just pause there for a second. That's another example of how the word of the prophet is going to uh, change the direction of, Jude, of Israel's history, the northern kingdom's history. Uh, the Amri dynasty has, been, has gone on for four generations. But now the Lord is intervening, and the form of that intervention is a prophet speaking and a prophet carrying out the anointing of Jehu. And that means that there's going to be a new dynasty and there's this going, going to be this terminus to the house of Ahab and Omri and the beginning of a new dynasty. There's a, there's a seam in history that's determined by the word of the prophet who is speaking, of course, the word of the Lord. And then verse seven is the one that I wanted to get to. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hands of Jezebel. Uh, Ahab had established idolatrous worship. Uh, he had done all kinds of evil. He's uh, done more evil than all the kings before him put together. Uh, and he not only uh, uh, continued in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he added to it by worshiping Baals, and he added to that by marrying Jezebel and allying with a... With a uh, uh, with an, uh, an apostate uh, Tyre, uh, kingdom of Tyre. Um, but the thing, that, the thing that the Lord brings up when he's sending the avenger is the blood of the prophets. Uh, uh, the, the Ahab's treatment of the prophets and of all the servants of the Lord is what determines his, his end. That's, that's the last straw. That's, that's the abomination that causes desolation to the house of Ahab. When he begins to to uh, when he begins and continues to slaughter prophets and slaughter the servants of the Lord, then then it's over. So the treatment of the prophets is going to determine the 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 rise and fall of different dynasties, uh, and not just different dynasties, but uh, the the entire uh, kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, its fate is determined in large part by its response to the prophets. Um, 2 Kings 17 is the one place we have in Kings that explains the reason for the exile. And it's an intriguing 
chapter because it's an explanation for the exile of Israel, the Northern Kingdom. It's at the time when the Assyrians are conquering Samaria, and this is an explanation, a theological explanation for why the Assyrians are able to conquer Samaria. Why doesn't the Lord deliver the, the, the uh, kingdom of Israel from the Assyrians, as he will, will later do uh, deliver the, uh, the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrians? Well, it's because they've gone too far, they've crossed the line, the Lord's judgment is coming, and central to that judgment is their treatment of the prophets. I think this, this chapter, although it's about the northern kingdom of Israel, this also gives us an explanation for the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. There's no chapter like this at the end of Kings that explains the reason for the Babylonian exile. But I think this same chapter, which is applying, first of all, to the kingdom of Israel, also applies to the kingdom of Judah. But notice uh, the, cent the, the focus on prophets and the treatment of prophets. Uh, 2 Kings 17, verse 23, uh, sorry, verse 13. Uh, and the Lord has reminded uh, Israel of their idolatry. And then he says, it says, uh, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn away, uh, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers in which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but they stiffened their neck like the neck of their fathers. They didn't believe in the Lord, their God. They didn't trust in the Lord, their God. So it's the idolatry, it's disobedience to the commandments of God. And then again, kind of the last straw is that when they're reminded that they need to repent of their idolatry and they're reminded of the commands of God that, uh, uh, that he delivered to Moses, first of all, when the prophets come and they refuse to hear the prophets, that's when the Lord turns from them. They, they didn't listen to the prophets, they stiffened their neck neck, and therefore the Lord will break them beyond repair. Uh, verse 23 reiterates this, verse 22 and 23. The sons of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. That's, again, the worship of golden calves. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. So the, the word of the prophets is fulfilled, but it's Part of, the, part of what's going on here is that the, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, have refused to listen to the word of the prophets. Uh, and that's the reason why they're going to go into exile. Uh, we can kind of deepen our understanding of what's going on with the prophets in Kings by thinking more generally about what prophets are and what they're called to do. I have a passage on your notes from Jeremiah 23. Uh, that uh, talks about true and false prophets. It's really a warning against the false prophets. And it says the false prophets claim to speak in the word of the, speak the word of the Lord, but they, they don't have the word of the Lord. Uh, uh, if uh, they haven't, they haven't entered into my counsel, the Lord says, uh, they don't have access to my counsel. And yet they, they go out speaking as if they had the word of the Lord, even though they've never been in the Lord's court. Uh, and that's one hint that we have of several in the book of Jeremiah and, and some of the other prophets, that the key thing about a prophet, a prophet is that he has access to that divine court. Uh, we see this right at the end of Kings, the last chapter of 1 Kings, uh, right at the end of 1 Kings. The last chapter is uh, Ahab planning to go out and, and attack Ramoth-Gilead. He wants to recover it from the Arameans. 
Remember the Arameans who were, I mentioned earlier today were uh, given, uh, they, were, they were given a bunch of gold and silver from the temple. So they're, they're, uh, they become, uh, they're empowered by the Southern kingdom to attack the Northern kingdom. So they've taken Ramoth Gilead, Ahab's trying to recover that for Israel. And he's got all his prophets in front of him. They're all encouraging him to go out. But then the one true prophet comes, Micaiah, and he speaks the word of the Lord. Well, how does he know the word of the Lord? Uh, he tells Ahab how he knows the word of the Lord because he was in the presence of the high king. He's standing there before Ahab and Jehoshaphat, the two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah. They're both sitting there on their thrones. And he says, I was in a different royal court, a higher royal court, the Lord's royal court. And I heard the deliberations of that court. And I'm reporting to you, uh, I'm a court reporter. I'm reporting to you what the court said. Uh, the Lord had determined that he's going to lure Ahab to his death. And he's trying to figure out, uh, is he, uh, Ahab's, Ahab is going to be judged. He's going to die. Uh, how is he going to, um, uh, how is this going to happen? He looks for volunteers and there's a spirit that volunteers to put a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. So they will encourage him to go out and fight against Eremoth Gilead, and then he'll die in the midst of that battle, which is eventually what happens, of course. Uh, Micaiah's prophecy is one of the many prophecies, again, that comes, comes to pass within the course of the history of Kings. Well, we see Micaiah as functioning as a true prophet there. He's a true prophet because he doesn't just stand in the court of, uh, court of, the, um, of the human king. But he stands in the court of the human king as a representative of the court of the high king, of King Yahweh, the Lord. He stands before kings as a spokesman for the king of kings. And he delivers the word of the king of kings uh, to the human kings. Uh, that's the prophet's role. And he's able to do that because he has access to the, the court of the Lord. He's got access to his throne room. Um, and he can hear the deliberations. Uh, I've said he's a court reporter. You can think of the, the prophet as a kind of covenant prosecutor. So he's in the court of the Lord. The Lord pronounces a judgment. The Lord says, I'm going to carry out my curse against Israel. This is the decision of the high court. And then the prophet goes out and he tells Israel and he tells the kings, this, this is the indictment. Uh, and this is the sentence. Uh, the indictment is that you've broken covenant. Uh, you've, you've committed idolatry. And the sentence is, you're going to die. It's a death penalty. Uh, and he's, he's, the, he's the prosecutor announcing the indictment and the sentence from the high court. Sometimes prophets function as kind of defense attorneys. They're in the court of the Lord, not just to hear the uh, judgments of the court and deliver those, but they're there in order to talk back. They have the privilege of the floor in the divine court. Um, and they can, they can intercede, uh, and the Lord listens to them. We, we, uh, I mentioned uh, Moses uh, on the mountain as a, as a prophetic intercessor. Uh, Abraham is the first prophet in the Bible. He's identified as a prophet in, in Genesis 20. And we see him functioning as a prophet in, in Genesis 18 when he's, when he's talking to the Lord about Sodom. And he's interceding for Sodom. That's a prophetic role that he's assuming there. And he can do that because he's on this intimate, he's got this intimacy with the Lord 
the Lord listens to him. The Lord says, before, before they have that conversation, the Lord says, can I hide something from Abraham? Uh, Abraham's my friend, and I'm going to disclose my plans to Abraham, and I'm going to listen to what Abraham has to say about it. We have this kind of, this kind of uh, dialogue about the fate of, about the fate of Sodom, uh, and that's because Abraham has been has matured to the state where he's a prophet, where he has the ear of the Lord. Uh, I'll just say parenthetically, um, um, I, I, I imagine that all of us know people like this that just seem to have this kind of intimacy with the Lord. Uh, you know, we uh, the, we commoners <laughs> pray and pray, and you know, we it doesn't feel like our prayers get answered. And then we we know people though. And it seems like uh, they pray for something and it happens. And they have this kind of rapport with God. Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of prophetic, uh, that's kind of prophetic role that they're playing. Uh, that's what the prophets are. They're friends of God, friends of the court, who receive the deliverances of the Lord's judgments in court and, the, and then, and then uh, bring those to Israel. And in some cases, again, persuade the Lord to change to change his course. Uh, Abraham does that to some degree. We see that in Amos, in the book of Amos, when Amos is shown a vision of some judgment that's coming, he protests. Lord, don't do this. Uh, Israel is small. Israel is weak. Don't let this happen. Uh, and so, um, and the Lord relents. The Lord changes mind. Uh, that's that's a that's a that's a prophetic that's a prophetic kind of role to intercede on that in that in that way, um, but this uh, the, the that access to the divine court the access to divine palace as it were, is the reason why um, uh, that's the reason why or that's that's the basis rather for prophetic ministry. Prophets speak to kings with authority because they speak the word of the Lord. And they speak as representatives of the king of the king, uh, the king who is over the king. Uh, and if the church is a company of prophets, which Peter says we are in his sermon at Pentecost, um, you know, quotes from Joel 2, um, everyone receives the spirit, all prophesy, we're all prophets, we're a company of prophets. If that's true, then the church in various ways has this role to hold kings accountable to the king of kings. We have the word of the Lord to, uh, to uh, deliver to them. Uh, we have the, the word of the scriptures. We have the spirit that guides us in applying the scriptures to particular cases, particular situations. We have the inside of the spirit. And uh, in our different capacities, we're called to give that pronouncement, those kind of pronouncements, to uh, to um, to kings and rulers and hold them accountable. We can only do that if we really are hearing the word of the Lord uh, and that's not disturbed by all the static of different voices. We want our ears open to the Lord so that we can deliver that word to the kings that, uh, and rulers and, and powers. Uh, and we wanna, we wanna make sure that we're not the false prophets who are just giving our rubber stamp to everything that the uh, kings and rulers want to do. That's that's the way prophecy works in other in other places. It's the way the prophecy works in the king of Ahab. He's got lots of prophets, but they all say exactly the same thing, and it's always telling Ahab exactly what he wants to hear, 
sometimes the church functions that way, but that's not our, that's not what we're called to as a prophetic community. Uh, we're called to uh, bring the word of the Lord to bear on, uh, on, uh, on the powers that, that, uh, uh, that are subordinate to, uh, to the Lord Jesus. He is the King of Kings, and we speak his word to kings and powers and rulers. Uh, and we can be confident that our word, as we speak it faithfully, as we speak it in, in uh, as we speak scripture uh, to this, uh, to these rulers and kings, we can be confident that the Lord will make that word effective. Um, so so at, at the center of Kings, as I mentioned, are uh, these long prophetic narratives about Elijah and Elisha. And I want to end with a, making, highlighting a few things, this, a few things about Elijah and Elisha. This is a, a long, uh, a long passage in Kings. So there's no way we can go over uh, all of it. And it's, it perhaps is the most familiar part of Kings to all of you. So it may not be as, as important to, as necessary to go over. But I want to highlight a few things that I think are important for understanding how prophetic ministry is working in Kings and how prophetic ministry works uh, in other, uh, in, within the church and in the church and as its confrontation with uh, political and uh, cultural powers. Um, the first thing I note there on the notes is the prophets come, are, prophets are perpendicular to the linear history of Kings. And what I have in mind is uh, uh, just partly a literary point. Literary point. Uh, if you go to 1 Kings 17, which is where Elijah is introduced. In the previous chapters, <clears throat> after chapter 11, which is the end of the reign of uh, Solomon, we've had this very regular uh, rhythm, literary rhythm, uh, which uh, opens a, a, the reign of each king in a kind of formula. It coordinates, each, each opening formula coordinates the reign of one king in Judah with another, with a king in Israel. It, it, it uh, harmonizes those two in the in the 15th year of so-and-so king of Judah, so-and-so king of Israel became king, and he reigned so-and-so number of years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, those are the, that's the formula that begins each reign. And at the end of each reign, we have now the, the other acts of so-and-so king of Israel, are they not written in the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Uh, and, and so-and-so died and he was succeeded. So you have these very regular, very regimented accounts of the king's reigns. And you get into this rhythm, you know, a king's reign opens, a king reigns, a king's reign closes. Another king comes, another king dies, another king, another king, very, very regimented. And then suddenly, whoosh, coming out of nowhere is Elijah. Uh, there's no introduction. He's called a Tishbite. Nobody is quite sure what Tishbite means. He's from the Tishbe, the settlers of Gilead. So Tishbite appears to be something about settlement, but exactly what? He's not given much of any genealogy or background. He comes at, uh, at, a, at the perpendicular. You got, this, you got this, let's say the history of kings is going, uh, going horizontally, one king after another, very regimented. And then coming down from on high, you have this, this uh, slice into history, uh, this break in, the, in this regularity, this literary regularity. And that's not just a literary device, that's showing us that there's a, there's a breach in Israel's history. When Elijah appears, he appears in the power of the spirit and there's this kind of uh, intrusion 
that upsets the the regularity of the history of Israel. And and Elijah doesn't just do that in literary terms. He does that actually. I mean, he's he's a disruptive force in Ahab's reign. Elisha is going to be a disruption a disruptor in the reign of Ahab's successors. The only other place where you have this technique in Kings, interestingly, the only other the only other major character who's introduced who comes on the scene without that kind of introduction is Athaliah. Uh, she's the one ruler who doesn't have a beginning or an end uh, formula to her reign. And of course, Athaliah is an intruder. She doesn't belong there. She's, she's a, a daughter of Ahab, uh, and she becomes queen of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, she, she shouldn't be queen of Judah, but she's there. And she's not even dignified with the kind of, uh, with the kind of formula that uh, uh, the kings normally get. But Elijah, uh, the prophets come from, uh, prophets come by the spirit. The spirit blows where he wills. You don't know where he's coming from or where he's going, but you hear him. You hear the sound of him. You don't know where Elijah came from. You don't know exactly where he's going. It's hard to tell what he's up to all, all the time, but you hear him. He comes with the word of the Lord, and he comes like this uh, bolt from the blue into Israel's history. That's a feature of prophetic ministry. Um, Elijah and Elisha are, 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 are pairs, and in a lot of ways, the, the, they're twins. There's a lot of things that Elijah does that Elisha will do. That's particularly evident in the beginning of 2 Kings when Elijah departs, and he gives his cloak and uh, the firstborn portion, the double portion of his spirit to Elisha, and then Elisha, going back into the, going back into the land, kind of repeats the miracles of Elijah. He is, he's the new, he's the new, he's the new Elijah, uh, fun, uh, functioning, living by the power of the spirit of Elijah. So they're twins in a lot of ways, but there are important differences between them. And one of the key differences uh, is uh, between Elijah as the sole isolated prophet and Elisha as the head of communities of prophets. Uh, Elijah complains several times, three times, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one left. And the Lord tells him, oh, no, you aren't the only one left. There are, there are 7,000 who have not kissed Baal. Um, you're not the only faithful one left. But uh, you, could, you could be forgiven the imp impression that Elijah, Elijah has a reason to think that. Uh, he's surrounded by... Uh, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, he's hounded by Ahab and Jezebel. We know that there are other prophets. Obadiah, who is in the court of Ahab, is keeping some prophets hidden in a cave, but Elijah is the one who's only, is the only one who seems to be active at this time. Micaiah is there at the end of the book, but Elijah's, uh, Elijah's a sole prophet. And then as soon as Elijah is departing, 2 Kings 2, as Elijah goes out of the land in order to be taken up to heaven, Every stop that they make, there's groups that are called sons of the prophets. Where'd they come from? <laughs> uh, the, only, the only plural, the only use of the word prophet in the plural in first Kings, the only uses of that plural are descriptions of companies of false prophets. The false prophets who are with, uh, uh, who are trying to get fire from heaven in, in first Kings 18 in that contest with Elijah, or the false prophets in 1 Kings 21, 22, where who are trying to uh, 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 
trying to convince Ahab to go out and fight against Ramoth Gilead. Um, you don't have any groups of prophets, true prophets, uh, in 1 Kings. But then suddenly, 2 Kings starts, and you've got sons of the prophets everywhere. Where'd they come from? Uh, we don't have any details about the origins, but we can, we can kind of fill in the gaps. At least we can say this. The, the sole prophet, Elijah, who, whom Elisha identifies as his father, has many children. Uh, Elijah's uh, lone, courageous lone ministry is fruitful. And by the time he's departing, there are companies of prophets uh, scattered around the land in different locations. Uh, and that's that's a pattern. Uh, that's a pattern, regular pattern, I think, in, in history. You have one one Luther. Luther's unprecedented, uh, unequaled, and yet he generates Lutherans. <laughs> and you know now there are hundreds of thousands, millions of Lutherans around the world, and not just Lutherans, but people who look to Luther as their uh, as a as the great reformer, even even people who don't identify as Lutherans are children of Luther. Protestants, all Protestants, are children of Luther. One courageous, one courageous uh, witness, and then over time you have this multiplication, and we see it with Elijah, the one courageous witness that multiplies. So you have companies of prophets. Interestingly. These companies of prophets. Notice in 2 Kings 2 where these companies of prophets are. So 2 Kings 2 2, Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Elisha said, As the Lord lives uh, and as you are and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, and so on. Sons of the prophets in Bethel. What do we know about Bethel? Bethel was one of the places where the golden calves were worshipped. It's one of it's Jeroboam's first shrine. It's the place where the man of God from Judah confronted Jeroboam. Bethel has an ancient history, of course, going back to uh, going back to Jacob or even to uh, Abraham, I think. Um, well, yeah, uh, Jacob. He, he's Jacob is the one who names it. Um, going back to Jacob, but in terms of kings, Bethel is associated with idolatry. But now, in the very center of idolatry. Uh, there are sons of the prophets. There's a community, a company of prophets there. Uh, a little further down, um, Elijah, verse four, Elijah said, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. He said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Jericho isn't even supposed to exist. Uh, Joshua pronounced a curse against anyone who rebuilt it. We looked at that earlier. And the curse that comes to pass. Jericho isn't supposed to exist, but once it exists, as rebellious as it might be in its origin, there are prophets there. The, the companies, the prophets, arise in the very center, the very places where the idolatry of the northern kingdom is most intense. Um, so companies of prophets, companies of prophets in those centers of idolatry, and uh, another, an, another. Uh, uh, I don't. I'm running out of time, but let me say a couple quick things about Elisha, Elisha's ministry as opposed to uh, Elijah's. Elijah is not only alone, but Elijah is an outsider. 
who confronts Ahab uh, from the wilderness, as it were, and then leaves. Elisha is much more integrated into the northern kingdom's power structures. When, when Jehoshaphat and a son of Ahab, I don't remember which one, are going out to battle, 2 Kings 3, and they get stuck, and they don't have any water, and they say, uh, Jehoshaphat said, is there a prophet around? And they say, oh yeah, Elisha is over here. Well, Elisha apparently is traveling with these kings as they go out to battle. He's traveling with one of the sons of Ahab. Um, his, his, his servant, Gehazi, in 2 Kings 8, Gehazi is in the court of the king uh, telling stories about Elisha when the woman comes in whose son Elisha raised from the dead, she comes into the court at the same time Gehazi is there telling stories to the king. So you have, again, this kind of uh, movement, this dynamic. Not only does Elijah produce a bunch of children, sons of the prophets, but Elijah, the sole uh, outside prophetic force, uh, gives birth to a movement that gets integrated into the power structures of the Northern Kingdom without, without being court prophets. I mean, prophecy is always contested. There are court prophets around. There are false prophets around, and false prophets become more intensely, uh, 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 more abundant as the history of Judah and Israel comes to its close. Jeremiah has more references to false prophets than any other book of the Bible. Uh, and it's at the time when Judah is coming to an end. It's it's in times of crisis that you have false prophets. Uh, so, uh, the but the true prophets get integrated into the system. They start out outside, and then they seem to move. They seem to work their way into the system, but without compromising. Elisha is still speaking the word of the Lord, uh, even though he is no longer the outsider that Elijah was. And I think that says something about the the penetration of prophetic, the prophetic word and prophetic ministry. Uh, in uh, in uh, in in history and in kings, uh, let me. I, I had a few other things to say, but I just end with this: uh, that uh, I reiterate what I said at the beginning. That uh, it's the word of the Lord that shapes the course of history. Uh, it's not the word of the loudest, the one who shouts the loudest. It's not the word of the one who has the the biggest following on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Uh, it's not even kings as important and powerful as the word of kings are. It's the word of prophets. Uh, the word of prophets as it's recorded in scripture, as that's taught and proclaimed, it's the word of prophets, which means the word of the prophetic community of the church. Uh, as we speak with the authority of Jesus Christ, as we speak his word with the authority of Jesus Christ, that word is the determining word of, of history. Uh, and um, again, we should be uh, we should take take encouragement from that because uh, even when we're outside of the uh, the the places where we're outsiders, we're we're uh, uh, marginal to what looks like the power, uh, the the centers of power. The real center of power is with us because it's with the word of the Lord. Thank you. Hi, Peter. I'm really interested in the overlap between potential overlap between prophets and artists. Uh, looking in the, it's slightly tangential possibly, but um, uh, looking at the, the way prophets operate, performance art almost of Ezekiel particularly, also mm -hmm. a high journey and some, some stuff in Kings. Also the, 
the way that prophets can speak to, to kings, speaking truth to power, seeing overlap, definitely in how secular people would use the word prophets, but often with artists as well. I, I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that potential overlap or is that not a, not a thing? No, I, uh, I, don't have any, I don't have any real developed thoughts, uh, but I think you're, you're onto something. I think that's right. I, I, the, one, the initial thing I would think of is the, I mean, uh, what you're looking at is different manifestations of, spirit, of the spirit. Um, the spirit is the inspiration for pro, prophetic, the prophetic word. Uh, the spirit is also the one who equips craftsmen and artists for their artistry. So I think there's the that would be one commonality between them, but I, I think I think you're right. I mean the uh, the the prophets of uh, the modern age uh, have often been artists who are um, uh, opening up new directions for the imagination, often that have not only artistic implications but often uh, larger political cultural implications. But it's often artists and, and uh, poets that uh, open that up. I think two of the, you know, prophets are, um, as you said, they're they're involved in performance art at times. But even the even the uh, even the spoken word and written word that they produce has a rhetorical has rhetorical um, uh, uh, power and strength to it. Uh, the 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 the. Uh, um, you think of the the various woes of uh, uh, of the book of Isaiah, or the um, the opening of Amos with its uh, with its its repeated statements of uh, for three sins of so and so and for four, and then and then you have this you have this build up to a uh, a confrontation of Israel and Judah uh, as uh, as a as nations that sin. Those are those are rhetorical poetic devices that are being used to uh, reinforce the, the message that's given. I think that, I think that's a very fruitful line of inquiry. Thanks very much, Peter. Um, you, drew, you drew a parallel between the ministry of the prophets and kings and the church's ministry. Um, I wonder, would you say it's, is it fair to say that the New Testament church doesn't appear to be overly concerned with speaking truth to Gentile powers on the level of politics or policy or anything like that? Well, I think that, uh, I think there's more of that than, than uh, we realize. I think there's, there's more of it in going on in acts than we often realize. Um, I mean, uh, often the, uh, uh, the, well, uh, just as a, a, a starting point, the apostles are often in the presence of kings, giving testimony to kings. Um, so you have that kind of that kind of setting, at least, where the word of the Lord is being delivered to a king. Uh, and I think that the the um, the message has more of it, it. Yeah, it doesn't. Paul doesn't advise about um, you know uh, uh, he doesn't advise uh, any of the any of the Roman governors that he appears before about Roman policy. That's true. Uh, but he is presenting a political message or a politically relevant message when he talks about Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed king. Uh, when he talks to, is it Herod Agrippa that he talks about uh, um, 
repentance and judgment? And is he going to avoid uh, insisting that Herod Agrippa needs to be uh, aware that he will be judged not just for his personal morality, but he'll be judged for his conduct of the of the authority that the word has given him. I th I, I, hard for me to imagine that 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 would that message wouldn't come through. I mean, I am I right? Am I talking about Herod Agrippa? Right, is who I'm talking about. He, uh, he gets frightened, cuts it off. Maybe maybe it was one of the Roman governors. I don't remember. Um, but he cuts it off. He doesn't want to hear anymore because it's it's too threatening. Um, so I think there's more of that than we realize in in the book of Acts, and I think um, I think that the other thing is the setting. I, th I think you're one of the differences between what's happening in Kings and what's happening in the New Testament is that uh, the prophets in Israel are speaking to kings who are uh, uh, kings over God's people, and so they know they they should know that they're accountable to the Lord. There's a kind of heightened accountability and responsibility. Uh, and there's an assumption that they, uh, that uh, the prophets are speaking things that are part of the world, part of, part of the, part of the political world that they're in. That, that assumption can't be made in the New Testament period. So I think, yeah, there's certainly differences, but I, I, I don't think it's completely absent from the New Testament. Peter, I think it was a comment you made um, in the commentary, which I found really intriguing, how um, Elijah continues to go to Ahab with the word of the Lord, despite there being the remnants of 7,000, that he doesn't just um, play it safe and stay within the, the bubble of those that are faithful, that he keeps going with the word of the Lord to those that rejected it. And I think you brought the challenge to the church that we shouldn't become separatists and just stick to our little section that have got it all right but we should feel a responsibility to the wider church where the word of the lord has been abandoned and rejected and i found that a really challenging comment i just wondered if you could expand on that a little for us uh yeah it may be uh it may be uh, more relevant for me to talk about it after uh, i think the next talk is about the divided kingdom and i'm going to be uh, maybe speaking about that more directly but if if i don't address it in the next uh, lecture then bring that back up and i'll I'll address it. Okay, I've got time for a quick one from Andy. Sorry, just because he hasn't got before. Um, and then we'll go. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think just interested if I could draw you out, I might as well just go, go straight to the point, try and draw you out. And this is not antagonistically at all. I'm very interested in kind of a post-mill uh, perspective there. Is that, are you optimistic about this? authority that we have speaking to nations, changing society. Uh, yeah, would you like to just, can I draw you out on that at all? Uh, optimistic, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant of uh, using the term. I think Chesterton says something about optimists and pessimists that has, I don't remember what he says, but I remember thinking I'm gonna avoid using that word in general. I would say I'm, I'm hopeful I'm convinced that Jesus is going to, Jesus claims the nations, that's explicit. Um, I, I believe that Jesus is going to make good on that claim. Um, God has promised Abraham, God promised Abraham that the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed. I think that's going to happen and I don't think that's limited to um, individuals being 
converted. I think that's about nations being transformed by Abraham's seed. So yeah, I believe that that's what, what God has promised to do. I believe that's what the commission that the church has been given is to make disciples of the nations uh, or more directly said to disciple the nations, which is not, again, just to pull out disciples here and there, but to disciple them as peoples, uh, to uh, bring, bring the commandments of Jesus to bear on uh, every aspect of, uh, of a people's life. Um, and I believe, yeah, I believe that's, that's what God is up to.